You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. Good morning to my real life family. How are you? Love that you're here for this all important topic. Super tricky today, actually, because it's a fairly big deal what we're going to talk about. And uh, I think one of the interesting things about the cross and everything that the cross means to us is that as we've been building this story, we've been reaffirming God's goodness, his, his patience, his grace, his intent to invite you into a better way of understanding life. And then we get to the cross and all of a sudden it's like, beat you up, make you feel bad, remind you how awful you are. Like it's, uh, what I want to wrestle with today is what if we saw the cross in light of the larger story that God has already been telling? What if the cross wasn't so much a right turn in a different direction, but a fulfillment and an unveiling of the story that God has already been up to for lots and lots and lots of years? Like what can we learn about that? And so we're going to do that today. Um, I want to go back and review a little bit about um, where we've been. And then we're going to jump into kind of this issue of the cross and kind of some things that maybe we haven't thought about before. And then um, we're going to land the plane on, on what I believe is Jesus's heart on the cross, which is really closely tied to where we're at as a church and where God has us as a larger real life on the Palouse community. So uh, we're going to begin with our, our review. Remember week one, we talked about God is good. He created a good world full of good things and he created you. Tove mayoed. Real good. You're not a mistake. You're not a whoops. You're not a, oh, what did I do? God's not up in heaven going, oh my me, what do I do with these people? He's not saying that. God looks at you and says, wow, you are very good. The problem for us, week two, is that we, we allow all these other voices to enter the story. We listen to these other voices, and that gives way to turning down the voice of God in our life, and then we make all kinds of poor choices that lead to shame, and that shame causes us then to jump back into a cycle of reoffense. So then we talked about this. God finally, in Abraham, finds a guy that will take him at his word and that will trust the story that God's trying to tell in the world. And so God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to him that the whole world will be blessed through his family. So God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. Like this is important for us to grapple with because God wants to make your name great too, but not so that you have a great name. He wants to make your name great so that you can be a blessing to the whole world. It's what he wants to do in your life. You are designed by God to be a blessing conduit. And so we've been kicking around this idea of writing a worship song called Blessing Conduit, because conduit is a really strong worship word. Um, you, there's a lot of worship songs with the word conduit in them. Strong, easy to rhyme with. Conduit, we're fond of it. Um, 
Yeah, so here's a funny thing. So last week we were talking about this in Moscow. We were talking about being blessing conduit. And uh, somebody, and I don't know who it was because their number wasn't in my contacts, but they sent me a screenshot of a picture with synonyms of conduit. Trenchway was one of them. I was like, that's way better. That's way better. The blessing trenchway, like the blessing sluice box. That was, that was one. I was like, I'm down with that. Because uh, anyway, so God comes to Abraham, makes this promise to make his name great, but not for the purpose of making his name great. He makes his name great so that he can be a blessing to the whole world. And that is why God wants to use us as well. Not so that we become such a big deal, but so that God can bless the whole world, right? Then we talked about this cycle. And and as much as we want it to be about us, My sin does not tell the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not about God up in heaven trying to outguess his people. He's like, oh, they went over here. Oh my goodness, I gotta cut that off. Oh, they went over here. No, the story of the Bible is about God's unrelenting patience for you and his determination to love you back no matter what. You can't blow it so bad that God won't take you back. That's the cycle that we go through in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the whole rest of the Old Testament. And then we talked about the fact that, man, this is really your and I's life as well, right? That it's not so much about the fact that I I keep thinking it's about me. I just keep messing up. I just keep blowing it. I just keep doing it. No, no, no. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about a God who is relentless in his determination to love you without any regard for how well you're going to love him back. His determining, his um, limitless patience for you. And so then last week we talked about the, the idea that if there was a way to stay out of this redemption cycle where God has to keep delivering, 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 what would it look like? And so what we talked about last week was this. God gave us a picture, a model of what to do, of how to, of how to live like that. And so when in doubt, when you don't know what to do in your life, just act like Jesus. Like you will never go wrong if you act like Jesus. And the great thing about that is that sometimes we're confused about like, well, what does that mean to act like Jesus? Like in this context, because there's a lot of situations that we face that there isn't a clear thus saith the Lord for. Like they didn't have cell phones, so there's not a lot of conversation in the Bible about how much screen time should you have or um, how, what kind of movies should you watch. Like there's not a lot of conversation about that stuff in the Bible because it didn't exist. So what do we do with that? Like sometimes Jesus is this engager of culture full of grace. Sometimes Jesus turns over tables, right? So how do we know which version of Jesus we're supposed to act like in this particular situation? Well, the great thing is, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands and I'll ask the Father and he will send you a counselor who will lead you into all truth, the spirit of truth. Like the great thing about having the Holy Spirit in our life is that when we're starting to walk the wrong direction in our attempt to look like Jesus, the Spirit is there to steer us right. So it's good news. Like, you don't even have to figure it out on your own. The Spirit of God will help you. 
So the story that God has been telling is about his goodness and his love and his favor of mankind and all these things that are going on around that. And whatever's going on on the cross has to be seen from that perspective. I will not allow you to let your sin drive the story. You're chosen, not forsaken, right? That's what we sang earlier. You are what God says you are. You're not a mistake. You're not a horrible, evil, awful person. You are tov mayod. It's the other voices that will try to get you to think otherwise. And so today we've got to paint the cross from that perspective. Okay, that's the story that God's been telling in the Bible. So we're going to begin in John chapter 19. Let's throw it up here and read a little bit. Later, and I want to show you something that's going on that's really interesting. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. So underline that if you're taking notes. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, so there's this idea of Jesus on the cross, and this is reaffirmed, and it's in all the Gospels, this reaffirmation that whatever Jesus is doing on the cross, everything is done. It's finished. It's enough. It's things are good enough. They are where they should be. And that's a really important attribute for us to, to come to terms with because there's not more that needs to be done in the redemptive process. It's finished. Now, there's this lesson that we learn in the Bible that's actually really interesting. And that is that we serve a God who knows when to say enough. We serve a God who knows when to say it's finished. Where do we learn that? I would invite us all the way back to Genesis chapter two. Check this out. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day, God had finished the work. If you underline that, do a little fun little comparative word study on the Greek word for uh, the finished word that I asked you to underline in John 19 and this word in Hebrew. Do a little comparative word study and see where that shows up. It'll blow your mind. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. One of the interesting things that we see between the, the creation story and the crucifixion story is that there really are a ton of parallels. In fact, the Gospel of John, just as a book, is the retelling of the creation story. It's, it's this whole grappling match of John is reclaiming creation. Now let me give you several layers to that, uh, and some of it will be more interesting to you than others, but I'm a Bible nerd, and so you're going to have to just hang with me. First of all, there's six days of creation, the seventh day God rested. Secondly, there's a six days of the final week, Jesus is crucified, and then on the seventh day, while he's in the tomb, what is God doing? God's resting. Like, you ought to pay attention to that. Jesus is in the tomb. Like the one who's supposed to come and deliver us is in the tomb. Where are the disciples at? 
They're panicked, hiding, running, escaping, lying, betraying. That's what they're doing. What's God up to? Rest. Why? Because he knows what Sunday looks like. Like Jesus, his perspective of what's happening on the cross is so different than those who are following him. Those who are following him are scared. They're worried. They don't understand how, God, how could you ever mess with this? You know what's one of the fascinating things about that? And this is a total side note that you, this is just bonus material. On that synagogue service of that Sabbath, we know what passage they read. We know that because they've been reading the same passage on that date for 2,000 years. You want to know what it was? It was the passage from Ezekiel where he talks about the valley of dry bones. The statement, oh God, can you make these dry bones live? Only you know. <laughs> what is God doing? He's resting. Why? Because God knows what it means to say it's finished. Like, I know you're scared. I know you're panicked. I know you don't see how this is going to happen. I know that you don't see how you're going to be able to get out of this situation. I know that you don't see. But I do. And in the midst of all the chaos, the anxiety of the followers of Jesus' hearts, God rests. Now here's a question. Which story do you want to be a part of? Do you want to be a part of a story that when anxiety, when problems, when chaos hit, you freak out and lose your cool and be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Oh my goodness, because I don't know. Is that the story you want to tell with your life? Or do you want to tell a story of a God who goes, even in death, I'm, I can rest. Why? Because I do know. There's an old song, old hymn. It went like something like this. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. Right? You guys remember that? Uh, I know who holds tomorrow and I know he holds my hand. Why then would we worry about anything, which feels very New Testament-y, doesn't it? Like, be anxious for nothing, I think is what the Bible says. What that means is that when you worry, you're trying to act as if you don't believe that there is a God who's in control. Like, worry is practical atheism. It's atheism lived out. You don't believe God's got it. For those of you that are naturally anxious, you're like, wait a minute, I don't like that statement. <laughs> Take it up with God. Um, while you freak out over the issues in your life, what does God do? God rests. And John is trying to paint this picture in his gospel. He comes in John chapter 1, verse 1, with this amazing statement, in the beginning. Where do we see that word, that phrase used? Genesis, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled with us and became the light to all men. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God separated the light from the darkness and he called the light day and the dark night and he looked at the light and he said, it's good. John is retelling the creation story through his entire gospel. Here's another layer to it where you're going to go, no. For some of you that have been with us for a while, we've talked about this before. John has eight recorded miracles in his gospel. Eight of them. And you go, why eight? Well, because the first seven represent something and the eighth one represents a whole new thing. Okay? So the first one, Jesus turns water into wine. Number two, he, holds, uh, he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. And those, how do we know that? Because they're actually called the first sign and the second sign. Now, anytime that you see that happening in the gospels, you need to pay attention to it and start counting. Well, where are the other things that we call signs? Sign number seven is Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus raises a man from the dead. Seven in a Jewish mind is the number most closely related with creation or completion, not perfection. Perfection is not a biblical concept. Good news for you. Stop trying to be perfect and start working towards being whole because God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your wholeness. That's tweetable. You should probably tweak that one. <laughs> now listen, the eighth sign, if this is the, the tie down of the first week of creation, by the way, this isn't the only place where this new creation motif shows up in the Gospel of John or in the ministry of Jesus, but if this is the completion of our first week of creation, then what would the eighth sign be? It would be the beginning of a new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one. Check this out. Let's read about this eighth sign and see if we can't see what John's doing. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. By the way, doesn't this sound eerily familiar to what we've been talking about? We're crying, freaked out, panicked, worried, concerned about all this stuff. What, what are God and his angels doing? Chilling. I mean, I don't want to get all technical on you, but that's what they're doing. I think that's the official Hebrew word, chilling. <laughs> At this... She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener. This is the first century Jewish equivalent of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Where does John put them right back into? A garden. Where do we see a garden with the birth of new life showing up before in the scripture. Like this, 
John is being very intentional for his readers to say, look, this wasn't a mistake. This was awesome. This is new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one. And everybody, everywhere is invited to partner with us. Come on. Like that's, this is a big deal. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. By the way, it doesn't just mean teacher. It means my teacher. She's acknowledging him as unique and distinct. He's not one of the voices in her life. He's the voice in her life. God has always invited his people to rest in the midst of chaos because we serve a God who knows how to deal with our concerns. And if we don't get that right, then nothing else matters. Now I want to show you one other piece that I think is particularly stunning and beautiful for you and me. Uh, causes me to weep every time I think about it, so hang with me on this. I want to read for you, actually, before I do that, we have seven recorded statements of Jesus on the cross, seven recorded statements of Jesus on the cross. And if, if it's just, if it's like the rest of the Bible, those seven statements aren't random, right? Like, they're not random. There's something going on there that we need to pay attention to that's important. Here's what's going on in my considered opinion. This is not only my idea. This is, it's my opinion, but it's my opinion backed up by a mountain of scholarship, okay? Um, every statement that Jesus makes can be connected to Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Now, there's a couple of reasons why that matters. The first one, and, and the interesting historic detail is this. In the first century, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are all one psalm. Secondly, every rabbi desires four things in their life. They want to pray the text, they want to read the text, they want to teach the text, and they want to die the text. Therefore, every rabbi has selected what they call a, a life passage, we would call it a death passage, that as they're passing from this life into the next, they want this passage to be being quoted in their, uh, from their mouth as they're passing. What if... Jesus on the cross is not, see I was raised to believe that Jesus when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, he's, that God cannot look at sin and therefore he has turned his back on his own son as he takes on the sin of the world and Jesus doesn't know what to do with it and so he's like, God, where are you? That's what I was taught growing up. 
Read Psalm 22, verse 1. It opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus will go on every statement that we have recorded from Jesus on the cross is tied right back to that song. What if Jesus isn't wondering where God is? He's quoting his life passage. And what if it's not an accident that for his life passage, Jesus chose to worship? What if Jesus on the cross isn't crying out in agony? What if he's worshiping? And we've talked about this before, but it seems to me that when God's people weather the chaos of their life well, worship is the key. Like that is so important for us to grapple with. That what's happening here isn't so much about Jesus wondering where God's at. It's about Jesus being a model for you and I about how we should weather the trauma in our life. Need a little more to bolster that case? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. I love this. I chose King James because I love it for this passage. What is this passage? This, Jesus in Luke chapter four chooses this passage to announce his messiahship. This is his messianic call. Check this out. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to op the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. To appoint them that mourn in Zion. Now, by the way, any of this bad? Like, we should be looking at Jesus on the cross. If this is the, if this is the passage he claimed for himself, we should be dancing. Because he's about to cut this stuff loose in your life. Watch. To give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. <gasps> Did you hear what he just said? When you have the spirit of heaviness in your life, now let's divorce all the yucky stuff that's been attached to that phrase. When stuff's going crappy in your life, what did he give you to deal with that? Put on the garment of praise. When the Lord gave me that verse, I was angry. Because I was like, really? This is just like a month ago. I was like, really? Because nobody ever told me that. Like nobody ever shared with me that the way that we deal with hard things going on in our life isn't chaos and anxiety and stress and biting your spouse's head off and getting snippy at your kids and underperforming at work and not eating and not sleeping and all, or, or eating too much and sleeping too much, like however you deal with your anxiety. 
Nobody told me that that wasn't how you did it. They just said, well, you're not supposed to, but they never gave me an alternative. What if the alternative is when the spirit of heaviness is in your life, you worship your way through it. And Jesus on the cross is modeling that for us. It would make total sense based on his own passage. Listen, you will face chaos in your life and you will have moments where you feel like Jesus is still in the tomb. What do you do? Worship your way through it until you find God's rest. And when you're like, but I am seen and I don't feel God. Worship harder. Worship louder. And it may very well be that your worshiping actually does carry you from this life into the next. Praise God for that. What a testimony you gave us that are still stuck here. Listen, worship doesn't change your, your problems necessarily, but it certainly changes your perspective. I am absolutely convinced that Jesus on the cross is not crying out in desperation. Jesus is worshiping God as a model for you and me. And by the way, his followers got it. His followers got it. Paul and Silas are in prison in chains, tortured, beaten, worshiping the Lord, and the ground shook and their shackles fell off. You got shackles in your life that need to fall off? Jesus showed you how to get it. It's not just acknowledging that Jesus died for your sins. It's learning to act like Jesus acted. Worship your way through it. But I don't feel God. I don't know where he is. God hasn't spoken to me in so long. I don't know. I just feel, I just wonder where, like where is he? Am, am I the one that he doesn't love? <clears throat> That's when you need it the most. I lay me down. I'm not my own. I belong to you alone. In those moments, I need to be reaffirmed of that truth. I'm chosen. I'm not forsaken. I am who you say I am. No matter how I feel, I need to be reaffirmed of that truth. Are you with me? Yes. 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 Listen, Jesus on the cross looks at a God who isn't panicked and worships him through a tremendous amount of trauma and changes the course of history for you and me. Why? Because he was willing to hang in there and worship his way through. And maybe that's where we begin our own journey with the cross. Not like, yes, forgiveness of sin and all that stuff. Yes, 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 yes. All that's great. It's awesome. But what if where we should begin our story with the cross is this model of how, what it looks like for us to get through the hard things in our life? Because you will have them. Not all the time, but sometimes you will. Maybe that's where we begin. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. So we're going to do a couple of things here. Number one, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to pass those buckets that Thad talked about earlier. And we're gonna drop, I want you to drop those cards, those connection cards in there. So those buckets are going to come down the middle. 
and we're going to send them to the outside and they'll be picked up on the outside. And then we're going to take communion together. And we have at our church an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, you are welcome to take communion with us. But we want you to hold those elements till the end and we'll take them all together. Now, while they're passing all that stuff out, I, I want to work through some implications, some talking points that will pull us into this idea of what are, what are some of the conversations that we need to have this week? Maybe this week in your small group or this week around your table as you're talking with your kids about this one big story thing. Uh, maybe we need to see this um, conversation framed with some of these talking points. Okay, implication number one. God has always invited humankind to trust in his love for his creation, and that trust leads to true Sabbath rest. You can't truly rest. Thank you, Scott. You can't truly rest until you come to terms with the fact that you serve a God who is absolutely 100% in your corner. It's the only place that we can have rest. And if you believe that, if you truly do actually believe that God is for you, then it gives you permission to not have to get shook in the midst of crazy circumstances that happen in our life. And crazy things do happen in our life sometimes. It gives you permission to not be shook by that. Shaken. Is that the right way to say that? To not be shaken. It sounded like us from Bonner's Ferry, huh, Thad? <laughs> Sorry, sorry about that. I am from Libby, Montana. It's probably a step down from Bonner's Ferry. Uh, it gives you permission to not be shaken in your faith, but to be able to rest. Next implication. At just the right time in history, Jesus came to show us the full extent of God's love. Listen, we've been reaffirming this truth throughout this series that actually comes from the curriculum that your kids are studying. God's big story is about God's big love for us. This is, a, this is something that shows up every week for your kids. God's big story is about God's big love for us. Jesus on the cross is no different. That story is not about your sin. It's about God's big love for you. Now, yes, your sin has a place in the story. Yes, it needs to be talked about. Yes, yes, yes. But the problem is we overemphasize it because we really like to feel bad and yucky and guilty about Jesus on the cross. And I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm trying to give you a way to get over your sin, not fixate on it. Like, to me, this matters. Because I think the church has missed the boat and let people feel really, really bad. If you remember Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ moving, like I couldn't talk for days after I, like I couldn't talk about anything for days after I watched it. I was ruined, right? And maybe at, upon reflection, maybe that's part of the problem was that I was ruined by it. Maybe, maybe I wish, the only thing that I wish would have been different is that it wouldn't have just left me ruined. I, I wish that there would have been some way to go and because of this, your free because I think at that moment I would have tore the doors off the theater getting out to tell people about it. Next implication. God has always known how his love stacks up against our sin. I know you feel like your sin's really bad. 
I know you do. And I know you feel like you've really blown it a lot and you're horrible and blah, blah, blah. I know you do. I know you do because I hear stories like this all the time in my office and because I look my own self in the mirror and I know how my self-talk goes. I know you feel bad. Your sin isn't even worth comparing with how big God's love is for you. So stop worrying about it. Last implication. Will you allow yourself to find true Sabbath rest in a love that was displayed on the cross? Does the cross invite you to a place of peace? Like if you can't find peace in the cross, then maybe the place you need to begin is with a better understanding of what's going on on the cross. Jesus laid his life down and it was his good pleasure to do it because he loves you. It's one of the reasons why we take communion every week. It reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, Thank you for your big love. Thank you for showing us how to deal with the chaos in our life. Thank you that we don't have to freak out. Thank you that Jesus is our model, even in his most traumatic moment, he is worshiping you. Lord, give us the courage to not let what we can see change the truths that we believe about you. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.